your Bible or a phone, some device, you'll be looking at the Scripture with us this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3. Uh, we began Luke just a few weeks ago, um, and um, we, we're typically preaching through a book, and so we'll be in Luke for a while, just kind of chapter by chapter working through this gospel. Remember, uh, Luke is a second-generation believer looking to write an orderly account um, that's connected to Acts as well. This, these are two parts of the same book. Um, and Luke is wanting to write this orderly account to give assurance and certainty to the story of Jesus from, from John the Baptist all the way through the, the first generation of the church. Um, looking to encourage Theophilus, um, a Roman official who he's writing the book for, but also for us and for, for generations now for 2,000 years who want to see an orderly account of what the Lord has done and how God has rescued His people. And so we left off last week at the end of chapter 2, um, seeing Jesus um, as a 12-year-old in the temple, um, being told that He then grew in, in favor and stature with both God and with man. Um, if you remember the last verse of chapter 1, uh, verse 80, was that John the Baptist had gone out into the wilderness and would remain there until his public ministry. And so chapters 1 and chapter 2 have introduced us um, to the fact that God is fulfilling His promise, His Word, that the people have waited hundreds of years for, um, having not heard from the Lord um, for over 400 years. Now they're, they're seeing the fulfillment of this come to be. And so we've seen John the Baptist and Jesus just kind of interwoven in these first two chapters, and now public ministry is going to begin. And so let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturier and Traconius, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered to them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not ex exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. 
John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them that he locked up John in prison. So we have now the beginning of, of John the Baptist's ministry that's going to usher in the ministry of Jesus. And what Luke is doing first and foremost is he's continuing to root this story in history. Right? It's not a, hey, there, was, there once was a guy, and at some time he did a thing. He's, he's tying it to historical figures, to dates, to people, to let us know this was not just a story. This is rooted in history that God is intervening and working. And so in verses 1 and 2, he runs through a list of seven names. Right? The first five being um, either Roman or Jewish political figures, the last two being religious leaders. And so as we look at the list briefly, we see Tiberius Caesar. Um, this is the stepson of Augustus Caesar, who was in charge when Jesus was born. Um, he has inherited this role now from his dad, beginning in roughly 14 AD. So he's ruling from afar, right? right? He is, he's the Roman official from afar who's ruling. And then he would set people in place in other regions. And so one of them, another Roman, is Pontius Pilate. And what he would do in regions is he would either place a military leader, if necessary, or more of an administrative type who was meant to keep peace and to, to grab taxes. And that's what Pontius was. He wasn't a military leader. He was more of an administrator. And then they would share often leadership with locals who they trusted, right? Because it gave a little bit more continuity. It was easier to keep the peace if it wasn't just Rome from on high. And so Herod's family, now for three generations, um, the, the confusing part is a lot of them are named Herod, okay? But there's been three generations of this family who have been deeply embedded in Roman culture, who have deep ties. And so Herod the Great was the Herod that we saw when Jesus was born. He's the one that ordered the death of, of young kids to and under, right? He has now died. And we have his son here, um, Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee, when Herod the Great died, they didn't feel like any of his sons were able to rule like he did, and so they divided the region amongst three of his sons. And that's where we see Herod and Philip, right? Um, they're, they're two of the three here that are ruling and kind of reigning alongside Pilate, ultimately under the authority of Tiberius. Um, and then we have a mention of a couple of religious leaders in verse 2. The high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, right? Here's the thing, there's only one high priest. And so Ananias, um, Ananias is no longer the high priest. He was, he isn't currently, but it's his sons, like five sons of his, potentially even a grandson, right? The, the high priesthood just keeps being passed along. And so although he's, he's not the high priest, He's wielding power, right? We understand this, that someone could have a title, no longer currently have that title, and still behind the scenes be wielding influence, 
And so Caiaphas is the current high priest. He's the, the one that's doing this. But the, his family is connected. And so he's, he is the son-in-law of Ananias. All right? So here's what's going on. Here's what Luke is trying to do. He's not just rooting this in history for us. He's also saying, listen, it was a complex political and a complex religious situation. You've got a lot of rulers, a lot of guys trying to get their piece of the pie, a lot of situations going on with families ruling, with generations being a part of this, and they're all kind of intermixed in this area. It's not just one leader ruling. There are multiple leaders, lots of people to answer to. And what's going to be interesting for us is that many of the men listed here in verses 1 and 2, we will see again where they will stand before Jesus, right, having to kind of make a decision as to what their, their judgment call on him is. That they will have to give an account for Jesus himself. So John, though, is playing the role of bridge. He is connecting us from the Old Testament, right, to the New Testament. He is taking the promise, the hope, the expectation that the people have waited for generations that the Messiah would come, and he is ushering in the fulfillment of these things in Jesus. And so he's playing the role of Old Testament prophet, but an Old Testament prophet plus some. And so in verses 4 and 5 and 6, um, he quotes from Isaiah 40, right? This longing, this expectation that there would be one before the Messiah came who would step on the scene and would usher in the Messiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, like John is literally in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He's talking about a, like a highway that's now been prepared. Right? We can even think of it in regards to Palm Sunday. Right? As, there, as Jesus is going in and people are going, Who is this one? Right? They're saying, I'm preparing the road so that salvation can be seen. Because remember last week that salvation is not a thought. It's not an idea. It's a person. It's Jesus. So this, the path is being prepared. So let's look at his message. Look at verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, right, this is the river, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So he's calling people to repent. Then there's a need to, to be forgiven. Now go to verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Right, so he's out there, he's ministering, he's got some hard words to say, and he begins to develop a crowd, and people are interested to see Hey, who is this guy? What's he doing? And he's calling them to repentance. And he begins to warn that judgment is coming. We can see this in verse 7. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Right? Not the message right? you necessarily want to hear that wrath is coming. Verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Right? So if it doesn't bear good fruit, it's going to be cut down and thrown into fire. These are harsh words, a warning of judgment in 7 and in 9. And then if you look down at verse 17, his winnowing forks is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now listen, we're going to explain some of these things, but what John is telling them is judgment is on its way, right? The Messiah is coming, but with the Messiah is going to come 
judgment. Now the nation of Israel assumed, they knew judgment came with the Messiah. They assumed it was for the nations though, not for them. Right? They assumed that it, when Jesus comes, right, like Rome's going to get theirs and other nations are going to be judged for their pagan worship. But we're going we're to be elevated. We're good. We belong to Abraham. Right? We belong to King David. We are of Israel. We're good. And John now is saying, no, no, no. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. Judgment is coming. It's not just for the nations. It's for you as well. Like you have a need. A need to repent. A need for forgiveness in verse 3. Right? We see this in verses 3 and 6 and 7 and 17. And what a lot of the crowd would have been counting on was their heritage. Look at verse 8. He says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. So like, I, he's like, I already know what you're thinking. I already know what's going on in your heart. That when you hear me talk about judgment, you're like, it's for somebody else. And he says, because you belong to Israel, you think you're good. And what I'm telling you is don't begin to believe that that's what saves you. The judgment is coming, and it's coming for you as well. That it's not just in what you've done, your works, what we see in verse 7. Uh, Matthew clarifies when he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He was specifically addressing the religious leaders in the crowd. And he's looking at them and saying, like, right, when you call someone a snake, you're talking about destruction, about venom, about poison. Right? You're something that people should find danger in. And so he says, listen, your religious works are not sufficient, and your cultural heritage, your birth, isn't sufficient either. And so you can imagine the crowd begins to go, wait, wait, wait a second, judgment for us, not just the nations. Wait, you're, you're getting on the religious leaders? Our, our heritage, our nation, our culture isn't sufficient? You can imagine, hey, this message isn't warm and fuzzy. Like, what do we do with this? And you can imagine some panic beginning to set forth and some, hey, we need some more from you, John. We want some clarity. Look down at verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? It feels like an appropriate question. If you're told judgment's coming and all the things that you think will save you won't, what do we do? Like, how do we keep this from occurring? And he calls them to repentance. And in verses 11 through 14, he just begins to kind of give some practical expectations. And what you'll notice when he talks to the crowds, he says, when you see a need, meet a need. When he talks to tax collectors, those who would have been hated in this culture because they would extort and steal, right? They're, they're working for Rome. He's like, he doesn't tell them, hey, no, don't, don't, don't be a tax collector anymore. You need to leave that profession. He simply says, live with, it, with integrity in that profession. Don't be like what everyone thinks you are. Be different. When, he, when the soldiers come, he doesn't say, hey, you need to be a pacifist. He doesn't say, leave the military. He says, what do you do? Don't extort money. Don't use your power to overrun people, to make false accusations. Be content with your wages. He's not calling them to, to go and now become right monks or priests or to go out in the wilderness and live like him. He's saying, live in the same world that you've been living in, but live differently. Look different. Live in that world, and it looks different. He's calling them to a new standard. 
He's calling them to repentance. If you remember in chapter 1, when Zechariah is receiving this, this message about John the Baptist coming, Gabriel says this in verses 16 and 17. Speaking of John, he says, He'll turn many of the children of Israel, He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And He'll go before Him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's calling them to repentance. Repentance is a turn. It's a turn from what we're looking at, what we're hoping in, what we're counting on, what we're giving ourselves to, what our thoughts and our ideas are. And he's saying, it's no longer that. You've got to turn and put it on something else. He's calling them to leave things behind and to turn and to repent and to look to God. It's not a dependence on heritage. It's not a dependence on self. It's not on your works and your effort religiously. It is on mercy. He says, judgment's coming and the things that you think will rescue you won't. So you better turn and look to God who's going to deliver you. You better put your hope in Him. And so, He calls them to baptism. Now, quick note here. This is not um, the baptism that we would practice. This is not the baptism that Jesus will bring. Um, this is a kind of a, an early baptism. We know this because if we go to Acts 19, uh, when, when the early church, they meet folks who have only been baptized in the baptism of John, and they're told to be baptized right in Christ. What John is doing here is he's calling them to say, hey, if you recognize your need, if you recognize that your heritage won't save you, if you recognize that you need something and you need the mercy of God because you can't save yourself and you need forgiveness, this baptism is a way for you to posture yourself in, in, in awaiting the Messiah's return, in waiting the Messiah to come for you. It's a way for you to say, I recognize I'm not okay, and I need what the Lord has. And He's coming, and He's going to bring mercy. And so, it was, it was seen as a, a cleansing. This was one of the things that a Jew would have not, they would not have been baptized. But someone who was not a Jew, a Gentile, who wanted to become a Jew, would have been baptized. So there might have even been some offense in hearing this of like, I don't need baptism. I'm a Jew. And they're saying, no, no, no. You need cleansing. You need to, the posture that says we have a need and God is the one who's going to bring the solution. Listen to Zechariah 13, verse 1. And on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Right? He's saying... There's going to be a need for you to be washed, even you, nation of Israel. And so, right, John here is preparing them. He's talking about their heart, saying, you need a purified heart. You need ears to hear and a posture that says, God, we see our need, and we know you're the one that can deliver. They're looking for another exodus. Like this deliverance from an enemy that they can't come out from underneath. Whether it's Rome or spiritual um, depravity and separation from God, that they're needing rescue. They're awaiting God, awaiting deliverance. Their hearts are being prepared to have expectation for the new exodus to come in the Messiah. And so John tells them, right, because they begin to wonder, hey, this message is powerful. Like, this message is bringing results. What do we do with this? 
Maybe, are you the Messiah? Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation, they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. All right, he's, I'm preparing the way. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Saying, listen, there's one better than me coming. He said, and I would be, I'm, I'm too humble to even, right, take off his sandal. Something that a slave would do for someone, right? And a Jewish slave wasn't even allowed to do it because it was so humbling. He's like, I'm not, I'm not worthy to even do that. He is stronger. He is better. He is mightier. He's not going to baptize you with the water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That promise that the Spirit is coming. He's coming. And He's bringing judgment, and He's bringing power, and He's bringing a better baptism, and He's going to separate people into a couple groups. Right? And that's where this imagery now is the one who takes the wheat as it's been harvested, right? and you throw it up with the winnowing fork, and the heavy, the grain, the good, falls back to the ground, and as the wind is blowing, which we know something about, right? the shaft and the trash gets blown away. And what he's saying is that when Jesus steps on, right, when his ministry begins, what's going to happen is people are going to be divided. Because you're either going to submit to him, and you're going to see him as your deliverance, as the one who is taking you from Egypt, right, as the Exodus spiritually, right? He's going to bring you out and give you hope and rescue and deliverance, or you're going to reject him. You're not going to repent, and you're going to be separated out. That there will be judgment and separation. Okay, so in 2022, Pampa, in American culture, listen, we have an easily offended culture right now. And that it has not always been this way, but the message of Luke 3 is not one that just sits super easy on us, right? It's doing some things that would make us uncomfortable, like, hey, John, can't talk so harshly to people. Hey, Jesus, it's not good to say that we're going to make distinctions here. Right? Like this message offends. And we need to be reminded that, right, that, that God is not just coming and saying, hey, you're all good. Let's just, let's just get on with our day. He's coming to bring division. He's coming to bring rescue and judgment. Both are coming. And our repentance, right, will show which group we're in. Our repentance or our lack of repentance. There will be judgment. There will be separation. And like this Jewish culture, we live in an area of the country. Now listen, it is rapidly changing. But until this kind of current generation, um, pretty much if you were born in this area, you just assumed you were a Christian. And like the Jews would have just assumed, hey, we're good because we're the sons of Abraham, the sons and daughters of Abraham. We've had for generations now, people have said, I'm good because I was born in the Bible Belt. I'm an American. must mean I'm Christian, and we're just good. And now listen, we, for the first time in this area, have a substantial amount of folks growing up saying, hey, I, I've never claimed to be Christian, and, and me living here wouldn't make me that. But there's a lot of you that your generation, everyone just assumes they are. And the message for us this morning is don't count on that. You don't, you're not transformed. You don't gain repentance by being born or where you're born. 
It is something the Lord calls you to. We have to, often I would say with folks my age and up, you almost have to convince them here they're not saved so that they can hear the good news of the gospel. Because otherwise they just kind of think I've got it. Like, because I've just been around it. What else would I be? And Luke here is telling us, like John is rattling some cages because he wants them to hear, this isn't just for them, it's for you. You need rescue. You need hope. You need deliverance and you can't do it. You need the mercy of God. He's also reminding us now, right in a culture that is easily offended, that the call of Christianity is not you do you. Your truth. You figure it out. Like you, like tweak it, whatever fits you, whatever feels good. You do you. Who am I to judge? He's saying, I'm bringing judgment. And I'm going to separate those who repent and those who reject into two distinct groups. And one get mercy and the other get separation and judgment forever. I get it's a powerful and offensive and scary scary word. The gospel in in its good news also brings offense because we can't save ourselves. We have to recognize our need and our brokenness and our separation before the Lord because there is coming wrath and the need for mercy to be received. And yet, the hope of this passage, if we go back to the Isaiah portion in verses 4 and 5, prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. This is what John's doing. But listen, every valley shall be filled. Shall be filled. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight. The rough places will become level ways. What he's talking about is impossible. Right? You can't fill all the valleys and bring down the mountains and just make easy walking. But God can. And he's saying every obstacle in the way, God is going to wipe out. Because he's giving us access back to him. To where we belong. He is removing the obstacles. He is doing the impossible. He is powerful. Removing the obstru- obstructions. He is giving us Himself. So church, for us this morning, and for those this morning who aren't sure if you're a part of the church, like do I walk with Jesus? When He refers to repentance, He's not simply talking about our outward actions. He is talking about an in- inner renewal. He's saying it's, it's from your heart being transformed and changed that your actions then flow from it. Because living in a more religious context, many of us, myself included, have attempted to do religious activity without a heart that's been transformed. Right? And so we do the thing, and we don't feel any different. Right? It feels weighty, and it feels heavy, or we begin to think, I'm pretty awesome. Right? So we, either we, we're good at it, and we think we've saved ourselves, although we're, we know not to brag about that, or we feel burdened by it and it crushes us and we're like, I can't, I can't do it. And so it's, it's, whether it's attending church or, or giving money or reading the Scriptures or, or giving away a tunic, right? It's doing the right thing and going, is anybody noticing how awesome I am? Look at my repentance that I want you to see so that you'll applaud me and affirm me. Like we can do the religious thing and miss Jesus. What he's telling us is is you need a new heart. It's not your effort to do this, it's your heart. And listen, this isn't just a New Testament 
ideal. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 25. Something they would have hoped and expected and longed for. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right? The promise was, when I come, I'm going to take that stony, hard heart of sin out. And I'm going to give you my heart. And from that overflows repentance and obedience and desire for the things of the Lord. Not because we're white-knuckling it, not because we're welling up that desire and that energy so that we can appease one another. It's saying we have been transformed from the inside out, and so we're a new creation, and now we walk in obedience. Right? This is Ephesians 2, right? That it's by the grace of God that you've been saved, but after that salvation, right, that you cannot boast because you didn't do anything for it, verse 10, there are good works for us to walk in. The good religious works don't save us, but they are evidence that our heart has been transformed and we gladly obey and repent and follow after Jesus because of what He's done inwardly within us that we could not do for ourselves. And John is telling them, if you know Jesus, your life is practically affected. Tax collector, you now live with integrity. Soldier, you don't use your power. Crowd, you see a need and you meet a need. It's not just knowledge, it changes the way you live. And so we have lived in an area of the country where people assume by birth they're a Christian and all they have to know is know some things. Right? If I know some things, I'm good. And John is blowing both of those up. He's saying your heritage doesn't save you and knowledge doesn't save you. You need a new spirit, a new heart. And only the coming Messiah can do that. And so, yes, you see the judgment, but you also see the mercy. And the winnowing fork, right, is going to toss it up, and the good will repent and turn, right, by the grace of God, and those who reject will be blown away like chaff to the wind. That God takes the dead, which we all either were or currently are, and breathes life into them. That's Ephesians 2, but also look here in, in Luke 3. In verse 8, he tells them, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Right? No pride here. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What he's saying is, I can take dead things and make them alive, and they'll be mine. What good news for us this morning. <laughs> that is, we are dead in our sins, that God can take things that are dead and breathe his life and his spirit into them, and we are now His children, His sons and daughters of the King, making much of Him because we've received mercy and not judgment. Like this is hopeful and good news for the, for the Jews of this day, for the nations in this day, and for us 2,000 years removed from this. And He tells them it's costly. It costs you your possessions. It can cost you your finances. It can cost you your power. Right? You see needs and you meet needs because you've been changed by God. 
Listen to how Paul says this. This is Galatians 3. I'm going to read two verses. The first is verse 7. He says, as he's talking to the church in Galatia, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So he's saying those who are actually the sons of Abraham are those who believe, who have faith. If we turn to verse 29 in chapter 3, we see this. And if you are Christ, if you belong to him, then you are Abraham's offspring, and you are heirs according to the promise. It's like, if you belong to Jesus, then all the promises are yours. Because you become a son or a daughter of Abraham. Because you've received mercy and not judgment. You've received grace and not condemnation. So as it was, as it was costly for the crowds, for the tax collectors, as it was costly for the soldiers, that it would affect their life, we're then drawn to the fact that it was costly for John the Baptist as well. As his faithful and obedient to prepare the way for the Lord. And he looks at Herod, who's a Jewish political ruler but would have known the law and has now taken a wife that wasn't his, a wife that was his brother's, and has committed sexual sin, and John calls him on it and says, These are the time, like this is why we need mercy because of this sort of sin. And Herod is in power, and so he has the opportunity to repent because of the coming judgment. And instead, he does not. And he throws John in prison and will eventually take his head. Right? And Luke says, For all the evil things that Herod had done in verse 19, he added this to them that he locked up John in prison. So church, as a quick aside this morning, would we not assume that knowing Jesus means an easy life. That Jesus, right, that John was faithful to what God had called him to. He was um, brought about by an angel telling Zechariah, like, this is what your son is going to do. This has been spoken of from old. John was faithful to it, did all that God asked, and ended up losing his head in prison because of it. It did not mean he had an easy, comfortable life. His circumstances were extraordinarily difficult, and he was faithful to the Lord. And he, right, light and momentary are the trials of his life compared to the surpassing weight of glory that is, was awaiting John and that is awaiting us. Knowing Jesus doesn't mean you're not going to be sick, that you're all going to have all your needs um, financially, overly, abundantly met, that everything's going to go easy and it's always going to be yes, but it means you have Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. I was showing my family this morning a message from a pastor in Ukraine. And they're asking, hey, what are you learning as you're trying to shepherd people through war? And he said, I've got one word for you. Emmanuel. God with us. He said, the one who suffered and cried and has given us access is with us in Ukraine right now as we don't know what tomorrow holds. He is with us and He is for us and that is all the rooted hope we need. John's circumstances would have shown that he lost, and Herod in power would have looked like he won. John wins. And Herod, as far as we can tell in Scripture, doesn't repent, which means he is the shaft being blown away and separated out from the Lord. And John is the grain right, that is received, that is good, because of the glory and the grace of Jesus. Church, 
Not by your heritage are you saved. Not by your efforts are you saved. You are saved by the mercy of God. Jesus is sufficient, and He is enough for you this morning. Would you repent, turn to Him, and trust Him for your rescue and your salvation? Let's pray. Father, would you create in us a prepared heart? God, that is not indifferent to the things of you, that is not banking on um, our, our family's heritage, our nation's heritage, our community's heritage, Lord, that's banking on the mercy that you have given, that you are leading us out of the enemy's stronghold and into hope and peace and deliverance and mercy by your strong hand. Would we be a people who look expectantly upon Jesus as beautiful and as enough and find our, our peace and our rescue and our redemption there? And then would we walk with the fruit of repentance that looks like you? God, as we spend time in Luke, would you help us to see what those steps would look like, what it looks like to walk in right relationship with you and with those around us? Father, would you prepare our hearts? Would we not be so offended by the language of Luke 3, that we shut our ears to it. And God, would we be willing to have costly conversations like John the Baptist that might offend, not because we rejoice in offending, but because we rejoice in good news that God saves sinners. God, reveal to us areas that we need to repent of, and Lord, would we turn to your mercy and grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.